Today's reading comes from Luke chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. Jesus calls his first disciples. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, from now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Lord Jesus, we're in awe of who you are. You're the same Lord who prompted the disciples to do just the right thing to, to see a harvest. And we want to be the same type of church. Thank you, Lord, that you've got something planned to do this morning. You're already doing it. And you want to use your word to challenge and inspire. So I pray you might do that now. In your name we pray. Amen. Who's good at multiplication? <laughs> Meredith's going, don't look at me. Don't make me stand up and say, don't. okay, this is just for Meredith. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> seven, you got to yell out the answer for me quickly. Seven times seven. Wow, that's pretty good. Nine times eight. I'm looking at Davin because he's so smart. <laughs> he bilked on that one. Um, two to the power of ten. What was it? Somebody's a computer programmer. <laughs> okay, this one's for Neville. Two to the power of twenty. One million and forty-eight thousand. Five, seven, six. Close enough. That was very good. Yeah, it's worth a clap. Wow. And Doug thinks he's going to be a, the good next treasurer. I reckon that was a good rap, actually. <laughs> someone who's good with maths and words is Rex down here. If Rex leads someone to Christ, there was one, he leads someone to Christ, it takes him one year. We've been through this before, but let me say it again. It takes one year to disciple someone, they come to Christ. At the end of one year, this is for those who didn't know that last sentence, there are two people at the end of one year. If both people lead someone to Christ in the next 12 months, after two years, there's how many people? And those four people all spend one year discipling and leading someone to Christ. After three years, there's how many people? Eight, isn't there? It's doubling. That's what two to the power of ten is. So if you keep doing that 
five years in, what, you've got 16 people or something. But after 10 years, the answer that Nev gave is two people leading one person each to Christ in a year. After 10 years, there's a thousand. That's the power of multiplication. But what's interesting, if those thousand do the same thing, they take one year to lead someone to Christ over time through relationship and just take... There's how many at the end of the next 10 years? One million. Multiplication. God has designed life to involve multiplication, reproduction. But he's designed it to have this amazing thing, deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, which carries a cultural blueprint inside the organism, inside every cell, and says, this is what this organism is going to be. In fact, it's a bit like that with an organization too. The cultural blueprint that is passed on. Sometimes it's said that the DNA of a church is um, referring to discipleship, nurture, and accountability. Anyone heard that one before? Discipleship, nurture, accountability. We want good DNA groups Culture in a church is very important. What does that involve? We talked about it a little bit before. It's involving things like our beliefs, our worldview. Uh, as a church here, we are an emotional system. We're a collective. We're a living organism, not just spiritually, but just purely socially. And uh, we come together with very different backgrounds, but it creates the church we are, our family of origin, where we've all come from, will create the type of church we are. Our past experiences of church life will create this culture. The current views that society has on morality and truth is going to make us a little bit different to the church of 30, 40 years ago, isn't it? Hornsby Baps. Um, so apart from getting the gospel correct, because if we get that wrong, we're really messed up, there may be little more important in a church than culture. What do you reckon? Culture can be incredibly dangerous or it can be wonderful if something good is reproduced. Every church will deem certain behaviour important worth celebrating and other stuff we should move to the side discipleship is about multiplication would you agree that's what rex learned in his church he grew to a million people one year you take one year to share the gospel with one person if everyone keeps doing that by the grace of god that church grows amazingly so let's think about discipleship and this idea of multiplication and then apply that to this amazing passage that we just had read for us, Luke chapter 5. The end of chapter 5, we heard these words, they left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him after this encounter with Jesus on a boat and some tips about fishing. They left everything. And these newly called disciples of Jesus embarked on a very serious and intentional phase of training for the next three years, didn't they? They went and hung out 24-7 with one particular teaching rabbi. And why would they do that? Three years to learn everything about him. 
to learn how he dressed, how he treated people, how he slept, how he rested, what jokes he told, how he got angry, what reality was like for this man. They were on his tail. It would be impossible in first century discipleship to not become something like the person you've been following. That's the whole point, to find what the culture is lived out by the discipler and the disciples, the learners, become like them. Not all of them did. Judas didn't quite get there. But when we study the discipleship strategy of Jesus, I want to suggest that it's a multiplication strategy. How did Jesus do it? Because we know within 500 years, the church, this fledgling bunch of persecuted believers with no army, they took over the whole Roman Empire. Multiplication is at the heart of Christianity. So what was the Jesus strategy for multiplication? I think in this little passage, we see these three words, content, apprenticeship, and immersion. And they're still the three-pronged approach that we need to make disciples because it's in the making of disciples we become the church that is faithful and fruitful. Amen? Honestly, that, that's how we get there. If we are no good at making disciples... We could get good at running a center and getting lots of hires in there. But if we don't know how to make disciples of Jesus, we will not be a fruitful church. So we've got to work this out. So these three ideas that we see in the way Jesus did discipleship, the way he set a platform for multiplication, a content, apprenticeship and immersion. Let me read again what Mozart read in uh, Luke chapter 5, 1 to 3, regarding content. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. So people have come from all around Galilee, and Jesus is investing some of his time into these people, giving them in best part a lecture. Isn't he sort of downloading content? It's a different type of lecture. He's teaching them about everyday life. He's getting them to think. You know how Jesus taught. He's using parables. He's sort of dropping these slow-release truth bombs. He had a teaching style that was a little bit subversive. But you'd have to say there was a bunch of content about life that he was downloading. And the Sermon on the Mount is a great example, just around the corner on the same lake, um, where he gave this amazing download of contents. We are familiar with content, aren't we? And we live in the little slither of history where we got more content available to us than anyone in history. We love our content. We know content download, and it's certainly part of teaching but it can be very limited don't you reckon i mean these days the problem is finding out what the good content is have you found that um, so we need some experts in their fields to help us in that but there's another truth knowledge about something is not the same as working knowledge so you can sort of think to yourself i don't need to know about electricity i'm just going to look it up on the internet when i need to wire up something who knows that that don't do that at home? <laughs> That's not a good idea. You've got to have working knowledge when it comes to electricity. We need working knowledge when it comes to God and the church. 
and salvation. We need to understand how content in discipleship works. So at the core of our future, if we're going to be a church who multiplies, we can't be a church that is filled with people who say, you know what, there's some content in Christianity and I got the download years ago, but I don't really know how to use it. But if you gave me a test, like a Sunday school test, I reckon I could blitz the test. But the point is, do you, do you know, do I know how to use it? For instance, content that seems pretty basic is the, the Romans Road. <coughs> I mean, some of us don't know this, and many of us do. It's the gospel right there. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does that have a consequence? Yeah, Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. So all have sinned and all will die because of sin. Well, that's depressing. Oh, Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us in this. What are we meant to do then? So we're all sinners, we're going to die because of sin, but Christ died for us while we were sinners, taking that punishment. Romans 10.9 says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then I didn't put it there, but Romans 8.1 says, Therefore now there is no condemnation for me, even though I should be condemned. Romans 7 reminds me, I'm a sinner in, 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 in um a need of justice and judgment from God, but Christ died in my place. Therefore, today, on this day, September 8, I can say in front of you with full confidence, there is no condemnation for me, for I am in Christ Jesus my Lord. Hallelujah. And if you are a Christian here today, though you, like me, are a sinner before God, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith. And we sing those songs with all that wonderful doctrine, King of Kings, as redeemed saints. Hallelujah. Working knowledge of that content is when I'm walking in the door, I'm reminding myself, my mind, my heart, my body, I may not feel like a saint, but Scripture tells me I am. And by the grace of God, I will open my mouth and sing those songs, even though part of my conscience screams at me and says, you miserable hypocrite, who do you think you are? It may be me, might be the evil one saying those words. But if I have working knowledge of the gospel and as a culture, as DNA, at the core of who we are, we walk in every time, whether it's those doors or fancy doors at a brand new building, we walk in as redeemed people standing in grace going, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone else here calling them a sinner because I'm a sinner saved by grace. Amen. That's working knowledge of the gospel. And if you live in that and I can live in that, I can be like the woman who was loved much and able to love much. But the Pharisees forget that they need grace. Working knowledge of the gospel. May we be a church who has working knowledge of the gospel at our core. Jesus spent three years teaching them content, but it was ultimately through failure, through the death of Jesus and his resurrection, 
a download of content that became working knowledge. And these same disciples that had messed up so much, they wrote the Bible we have in this wonderful form we have in the New Testament to tell us what grace is all about. So we need content because if... Sorry to keep coming back to you, Rex. (laughs) When I saw you there, you just reminded me... um, Rex's church is a million strong, but if Rex didn't get the content right, what did he start? A cult, yes. Of course, he would never do that. (laughs) But if we don't get the content right, we could keep multiplying stuff that's not right. So may we be a church who loves the gospel and keeps coming back to it and doesn't get bored of saying that same gospel. It's all because of what Jesus has done. And then the second idea is apprenticeship, which is sort of, I think, obvious in this three-year process. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, this is not just a content download, mate. I want you to do something. Apprenticeship. Butch out into the deep water. I'm going to move away from the crowds and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said... I know you're pretty smart, Jesus. You're older than us. You're 30 years old. I've been doing fishing all my life. Leave this one with me. I got this. Anyone feel like that coming into the new building? Jesus, oh, we got that part sorted. You, you look after that bit. We got this sorted. Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. But this is the point that we want to have in our DNA. But I will do as you say. <laughs> Because you said so, I'll let down the jolly nets. So discipleship is more than content to store in our heads. It's more than theology classes, though these are all good. Discipleship is apprenticeship to the master whose name is Jesus. Apprenticeship. When's the time in your life when, you, when you've experienced apprenticeship? We have tradesmen, tradeswomen. Yeah, yeah. Like trade is a perfect example, isn't it? You, 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 you come on site, you don't know anything, and three years later you could go out and become a tradesman. But we've all done this in different ways in the workplace where you don't know how to do something and you get partnered up with someone who's going to show you how, show you the ropes. That's the Jesus discipleship method. Here's a funny thing to stop and reflect on. Why did he spend so long with such a small group of people? We've talked about this before, but it's worth stopping and thinking about again, isn't it? You went to Greece, to Athens, and you stood up there on the hill where the the big temple is. I can't remember what it's called. The Acropolis, yeah. And you look down and the Stoic philosophers have an academy. And democracy was started on a hill somewhere else. And the Epicurean philosophers somewhere else. And you look down the road, down the hill, and there's an amphitheatre for, say, five, six hundred people. And you're reminded the day and age that Jesus came into this world was a time that they were very familiar with download teachers downloading content. He could have easily set up the Jesus Academy, right? But he didn't. He took 12 disciples and there were others that were hanging around 
and he took them on a journey of apprenticeship. They travelled and did it rough. And he got them to watch how he did stuff. And it was a pretty challenging little mission they were on, the, the job that they were learning, uh, the trade they were learning, how to cast out an evil spirit. It's a bit scary, isn't it? How to heal the sick, how to defend God's truth, proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So Jesus' model is described in Matthew 11, which I think I've got on the screen there. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it's this most beautiful of illustrations about the apprenticeship model, isn't it? What is he talking about with the yoke? I think many of us know the two oxen have a yoke, a big wooden necklace that goes over the two of them. Why do you put two oxen together? Because you want to take an old oxen who knows how to plough the ground straight and also knows how to keep going for 12 hours. You put two young oxen together, they go, oh, oh, let's get this done in an hour. <laughs> They've got to go all day. So they... They were pretty smart in the first century in that agricultural community. They say, look, young oxen, I yoke you up with an old oxen who's been here and done that. And he's going to show you how to hold your line and keep going for the long haul. And that's what Jesus says, discipleship, apprenticeship's all about. That's why I need disciples. He said, I need you to come with me because you'll see me do crazy ministry and then you'll notice something that I'll do every time. And what was it that he did? Anyone remember? He'd nick off and find a quiet place to recuperate. He'd, he'd go and pray. He'd talk to his father. He'd, he'd do the ministry. But as the wiser oxen, he'd say, Hey, guys, when you see me disappear, it's because I need to refill. We'll never get through this journey, this three years, this 30 years. You're not going to make it unless you work out how to be a disciple. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, and it's such a beautiful way to do it. Um, his version of Matthew 11 in the um, message translation, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Isn't that a lovely picture? I won't lay stuff on you in body life that doesn't fit who you are. Anything heavy or ill-fitting, keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Anyone want some of this stuff? This is what apprenticeship is all about. So when Jesus yoked his disciples to his neck for three years, they saw how he lived. How he did it. Do you have anyone who's yoked to you? Do you have people who are yoked to you? I'm so proud of my son-in-law, who you guys know, Cal Baker. He's relentlessly yoking himself to young men. Ben's one of them. There's about five people who come from our church. They just 
relentlessly. He follows them up, goes out. They'll have a beer together or they'll play a game of pool or they'll just hang out. They don't all drink beer, but, you know, just investing in apprentices for Jesus. Then we've got some children that they're yoked to. Isn't that the most wonderful discipleship opportunity you'll ever get in your life? If you're fortunate enough to have kids, they're yoked to you. And they need to learn the rhythms, the unforced rhythms of grace. What a, what a perfect way to describe parenthood. Teaching those little people the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't put anything ill-fitting on you, but I'll teach you how to do this thing called life. You know, as a DNA, as a church, the stronger, if the Lord doesn't return in 10 years' time, I really honestly believe our health will m- most obviously be shown by the amount of people yoked to others in loving discipleship relationships. And that doesn't mean necessarily you're just teaching through the book of Romans, but you're just walking alongside them. You've got a mum who gets along, it's a young, younger mum, and says, you know what, you're doing such an amazing job. I just wanted to tell you. Same with the men. Some bloke, an older bloke comes up and says, the way you do that, oh, gee, you're doing a good job. That's the DNA we need. That's the church we want to be, a church of apprentices. And who's getting the idea that if you're going to be or I am going to be good at leading others who are apprentices, who am I? I'm an apprentice. I'm an apprentice. I'm learning because we're life learners. We're constantly in this posture of learning as an apprentice to Jesus and to those who he puts in and around and over and with us in our lives. And the last part, content, apprenticeship. And then I think there's this word immersion. Immersion, verse 6. When they had done this, they enclosed a great (coughs) quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. (laughs) See that... I think Tim Keller used to say there's two challenging things in life that will potentially ruin you. One is failure and one is success. Both are very hard to cope with. And the disciples here weren't ready for success, so they began to sink. And that's why we employed Virginia (laughs) to help us get systems and processes to cope with growth and success. It's not all on Virginia, obviously. But immersion, um, they began to sink, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Because I know what I was thinking in my heart about obeying you. And I didn't really want to, but wow. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. So Jesus delivered content He took on apprentices and then he immersed them in ministry. He said, go and try this and see how you handle it. And we know later on in chapter 9, Jesus sends out 12 of them with power over evil spirits and to heal the sick and to proclaim the kingdom of God. 
And then they came back and he sent them out in chapter 10 as a bigger group, 72 of them. And they would go out and they would try and they would be immersed in failure and success. And they would come back and what would Jesus do? He'd sit down and have a chat with them over a fire and go, how'd you go? I said, oh, that was fantastic. The demons, they submitted to us and others, we couldn't work out that. And she said, oh, so they don't come out without fasting. Oh, wow, okay. So there's this immersed in ministry and then coming back and talking it through. Jesus' method, the Jesus' method of multiplication, of discipleship, is challenging. There's a challenge and yet there's a constant invitation to come back the invitation to be close up, three years of closeness, personal, get to know me. But when I say go out further into the deeper water, you've got to do what I say. You've got to step out. Invitation, challenge, invitation, challenge. Do you guys remember Monty Roberts? He was known as the horse whisperer. Monty Roberts watched his father. He, was, uh, he grew up in the high prairies of the United States and watched how they would take wild mustangs, what we would call sort of brumbies, wild horses. And he'd watch how his father would break them in, break their spirit, and it was a brutal method. And he watched other friends of his father who would literally tie these wild horses up and then just beat them until they submitted, just beat them. And so Monty Roberts is a young man and he's like, there must be a better way. So he takes time to observe the processes, the unforced rhythms of nature and he sees what happens when a lead mare is dealing with a new stallion that's joining the herd. The lead mare is the one in charge. And so there's this process of invitation and challenge that he observed where the, the, um, the lead mare would see this young buck of a stallion come in and she would go up, flatten her ears down, the position of dominance, and over time this young stallion would sort of go, oh, okay, yes, massa, and just paw the ground sort of and do what needed to be done as a horse to say, you're the boss. And then the weird thing Monty noticed, well, I don't know how to act it out, but she would turn around and show her flank, like her rear side, to the horse. And it, in a way it was saying, I'm going to be vulnerable to you and I'm inviting you into friendship. And of course, the, sort of the horse would be like, oh, okay. Good cop, bad cop in the one. And she would then turn around and go, <laughs> scare him. And he'd go, whoa, you're unpredictable. <laughs> and this process of invitation and challenge, invitation and challenge was the secret that Monty Roberts discovered. And then he, in a very short amount of time, could train a wild horse and got famously known as being the horse whisperer. Invitation, challenge. Invitation, challenge. It's safe, but not that safe. Sounds like Aslan and Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe. Yes, he is safe, but he's not. What's the word? He's good, but he's not safe. Um, there's a challenge, invitation and challenge. Think about those words with the disciples. It's a nice mix, isn't it? Come with me. Oh, great. He makes the same invitation to us today. Come follow me. Oh, why am I being challenged in this? Oh, that's what happens with discipleship. Invitation and challenge. I've got a little... Um, up there on the board this is what churches look like you can have um, low invitation and low challenge as a church and that's what is called the boring quadrant that's an apathetic culture where it's like you know 
It's not particularly inviting to do anything much and it's not very challenging. And then you could have high invitation and low challenge and that's been called the chaplaincy quadrant. It's very cosy. It's so warm. It's so nice. It's so loving. We don't do anything, but it's very loving. Um, If you have high challenge and low invitation, that's stressful, isn't it? It's all about the army. <laughs> it's all about like, come on, let's go. Give me 10. But what we want to have in our DNA is high invitation, high challenge. It's the discipling quadrant, the empowered culture, where you feel like you belong, you're loved, and you're challenged. Isn't that what grace and truth is? Isn't that what love and truth is? You're loved and you're challenged. That's what uh, Mathetes is. That's a disciple. That's a learner. Following Jesus is all about this powerful mixture of invitation and challenge. So let me ask as we finish, what's your experience yourself? Are you a disciple? Have you walked through this, these seasons of invitation and challenge? Are you a lifelong learner of the master? Or like I feel like sometimes. Uh, sometimes I can feel like I'm losing my edge of being a learner. And then I'm reminded, if I don't fill my head and heart with content, my faith will never grow. Because if you haven't worked this out, Christianity... It's like, it's faith. If you don't read the Bible, you'll have no instruction about a world that you don't really see in this life, right? This life is marinated with desire from the world and it will take you down just another path. If we don't read something that says, oi, 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 there is a truth and it's about grace and about holiness and about life and about fruitfulness and about heaven and a new earth... If I don't come under that regularly, I am going to, I'm just going to be emaciated and so are you and so will our church. We must have content. There's a whole stack of books out there. (laughs) Grab a book, read something. If If you're going stale, seriously, brothers and sisters, there's a big world out there filled with content and you can access it easily on the web. If you've gone stale for a long time, you need fresh content from God's Word. And uh, are we apprentices? Who's learning from you and who are you learning from? Who am I learning from? And how are we being immersed in a new challenge? Where's your growth edge? Honestly, guys, where is your growth edge out there at morning tea, let's have a challenge. Go up to someone and say, would you mind telling me about your growth edge? What does it mean for you, for Jesus to say, take the boat out a bit deeper, chuck the net out on the different side? What does that mean for you? Where are you growing? Where am I growing? The word multiplication presupposes that as a church, Northern Life has worked out how to be disciples. We've got to work it out. Content, apprenticeship, immersion.
The passage finishes with, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Northern life may the second core value we have be true for us. Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. He's worth everything. 